So hopefully you have a handout in front of you. Uh, we want to begin, as we always do, by reminding ourselves that the Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist Church to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God and His world. We're spending 12 weeks this fall uh, talking about the Christian story, and I mentioned a few weeks ago we're going to have a bonus week, the week after that's just kind of a whatever we want to talk about, open conversation, uh, about the scriptures. More on that a little bit later, but 12 weeks officially. We're in the middle of a four-week overview of the Old Testament. We'll wrap that up next week. Uh, the past two weeks, we've studied the Pentateuch and the historical books, and tonight we're going to talk about wisdom, literature, and poetry. So by way of introduction, wisdom is an important theme really throughout all of the Bible, but it's, it's a very important theme in the Old Testament. So I like the way that the ESV Study Bible defines biblical wisdom. Uh, there's a quote here. It might be defined as skill in the art of godly living, or more fully, that orientation which allows one to live in harmonious accord with God's ordering of the world. So it's not about smarts, necessarily, but it's about the art of godly living, thinking rightly about God and His Word and living rightly before God in His world. The Jewish understanding of wisdom, which is what we find throughout the Old Testament, is rooted in the fear of Yahweh. Proverbs 1-7, among several passages, talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. And that doesn't mean uh, cowering before God. That's not the idea there. Uh, instead, it means something like a wholehearted devotion to the one God who is perfectly holy and is the creator, ruler, and judge of all peoples. Uh, now, one day, unbelievers will cower before God. But for those of us who are in Christ, that's not what it's talking about with fear of God. Again, it's more of a, a wholehearted devotion to God or to use the sort of language we used when I was a, uh, in, in the youth group in the 90s. It's being sold out for God. Some of you just said in the 90s, good grief, but yeah, that's true when I was in the youth group in the 90s. Normally, biblical wisdom is concerned with the art of faithful living, uh, most notably in Proverbs, and we'll talk a lot about that in a minute. But sometimes biblical wisdom can be a little bit more philosophical and a little less practical. That's especially true in Job and Ecclesiastes. So we find different types of wisdom literature. Some of it, again, a little bit more practical. Some of it, a little bit more philosophical. And they complement each other uh, in the Old Testament. Now, in addition to the primary emphasis on the fear of Yahweh, the Old Testament has a lot of other things to say about wisdom. So this is just a few examples. There are limits to human wisdom because we are finite creatures. God is infinitely wise. We're not infinitely wise. Our sin leads us to often ignore God's wisdom. Uh, to quote a former senior pastor at a church where I used to be, one of the pastors, sin makes us stupid. So there are limits to... Uh, so our sin leads us to often ignore God's wisdom. 
Generally speaking, heeding God's wisdom leads to flourishing, while rejecting His wisdom leads to various forms of suffering. Now, we want to say generally speaking, because it is sometimes the case that there are some fools that for an extended period of time are living the dream. And it is the case, as we'll see with the book of Job, that sometimes godly people suffer. But as a general rule, we flourish when we pursue wisdom, and we suffer whenever we do not pursue wisdom. One fruit of enjoying a covenant relationship with God is a life characterized by godly wisdom, and that includes sincere worship and faithful obedience to Torah, to God's law. Those are going to be two markers of someone who's living wisely, according to how the Old Testament talks about wisdom. And then finally, wisdom should be passed on from generation to generation. It's multi-generational. We see throughout the Old Testament, uh, the elders, I don't mean that like a church office, I mean that more in the age and family sort of way, the elders passing on wisdom to those who are younger than them. We find that throughout the Old Testament and also in the New Testament as well. Now, poetry, which we're also talking about a little bit tonight, accounts for about half of the Old Testament because there's lots of poetry mixed in various books of the Old Testament. But when we think about poetry, it is especially identified with Psalms and the Song of Solomon. As one scholar says, poetry displays an elevated style of language that may be adopted for a wide range of purposes. Much like English poetry is an elevated style of language that can be used in different ways. Though Hebrew poetry is its own genre, it's often considered a subset of wisdom literature, which is why we're talking about it this evening. The most important theme of Hebrew poetry is faithfulness to the Lord. And of course, faithfulness to the Lord includes wise living, right? So that's the reason why poetry and wisdom are often put together. So we discussed how to interpret both wisdom literature and Hebrew poetry during week three. So I would encourage you if you have that handout or if you want to go back and review it online, we're not going to get a whole lot into that today until we get to the Song of Solomon. And then we're going to talk a lot about it. But for the most part, uh, we talked a little bit about that before. So we're going to focus on the same sorts of things that we have been talking about. Old Testament wisdom literature, including Hebrew poetry, is similar in form and even in many of its emphases to pagan writings from that same era in the ancient Near East. In other words, there are pagan versions of wisdom literature and there are pagan versions of poetry. So what differentiates these biblical writings from similar pagan writings at the same time is the emphasis on a wholehearted devotion to Yahweh. Those pagan writings are not concerned about the one true God. Uh, they're talking about all the false gods that are out there. So what that means is wisdom literature also had, especially for the original and earliest readers, an apologetic function. It was challenging rival worldviews, but in a form that would have been familiar to many of the people groups that would have encountered the Jews. So if you're thinking of a modern analogy, it's not unlike uh, a popular genre in our era would be fiction. 
novels, short stories, things like that. And there are Christian writers who write fiction. Some of it's even good, but there's Christian writers who write fiction because that's a form of art that people understand and they're communicating the gospel through that popular literary form. And something like that was happening with these ancient Hebrew writers. Again, everyone in the world at that era and their part of the world would have recognized wisdom literature as a genre, just like we would recognize a biography or a fiction or whatever. Uh, others would have recognized poetry and they're writing the same sorts of things that pagan people are writing, but it's pointing people to the one true God. Does that make sense? So any questions so far before we start talking about the specific books? Because that's going to be where the real action is tonight. All right. Well, let's start with an easy one. Job. <laughs> there are no easy ones tonight. Some, some are easier than others, but some are harder. So Job is named for the main character in the book. The authorship is anonymous and the date is unknown. It is one of the few books in the Old Testament where we really just don't know. The best we can do is guess. We do know that the author was a Jew, and we know that the setting of the book, not when it was written necessarily, but the setting of the book is the time of the patriarchs. So it's placing it very early in the Bible's chronology. Not when it was written, but the story that it's telling. Uh, Job might not have literally overlapped, but would have been in general the same time period that we're reading about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and folks like that. Uh, sometimes, if, if any of you have ever had a chronological Bible, uh, sometimes Job is placed first in a chronological Bible because it might be, not counting Genesis 1 through 11, uh, one of the earliest stories that we have in the Scriptures. But we know that he was a Jew and we know it had to have been written at some point later because the author actually cites both from two Psalms and from the book of Isaiah. So that means the book had to have been written sometime between uh, the exile, we know when that was, and before about 200 BC, which is when the earliest copies of Job are available. But it can be any time up in there. There's nothing else that helps us to say this is what was going on, this is who wrote it or when they wrote it. When we think about how to break it down, chapters 1 and 2 are a prologue that establishes Job's character. We know very early on he's a good man, a righteous man. And then we get about 38 chapters that offer a series of dialogues between Job and his friends about why Job is suffering. Now, I almost put his friends in quotation marks because by the time you get to the end, you're going, man, with friends like that. But that's the way it's set up, right? It's the back and forth between Job and his friends. And then chapter 42 is a conclusion where Job submits to God, he experiences restoration, and his friends are rebuked. Now, Job includes the following key themes. And as with every book, there's, I'm not saying there's not other themes, but we're always trying to draw out some of the main themes that are unique to those books. God is sovereign over evil and suffering, and His character remains unchanging. 
Uh, Martin Luther, in referring to the book of Job, says that uh, when we read Job, we see that Satan is real, but he's on a leash. So God is sovereign over evil and suffering, but not in such a way that God's responsible for evil and suffering. His holy character is unchanging. Number two, we can trust God even when we cannot understand our own suffering. Now, chances are there have been times, not to the degree Job has, but chances are in our individual lives or the lives of people we're very close to, family and friends, there have been times where we have suffered to some degree and we knew exactly why we were suffering. And there are other times we were suffering and we had no idea, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my loved ones? Job, who has no idea why things are happening until the very end, reminds us that we still trust God. Whether we know exactly what got us in this situation or whether we have no idea, we're trying to be faithful and it just seems like nothing's going well and things are always falling apart. Number three, God is not afraid of hard questions when they are asked sincerely from a posture of faith. Now, He's not ever afraid of hard questions. So I could have worded that maybe a little bit better. But I think you know what I mean by that. Maybe we should say God welcomes hard questions when they're asked sincerely from a posture of faith. Not from scoffing, not trying to get God, not shaking your fist at God in rebellion. But when you say, how long, O Lord? Why, O Lord? I don't understand. God welcomes that. And we see that in the book of Job. And then finally, the wisdom of humans is confounded by the wisdom of God. Job's friends, now we know the end of the story, or most of us know the end of the story. But if we're in the middle of the story, Job's friends were trying to be faithful. They were trying to be good friends. And much of what they say makes common sense and might even apply in other people's circumstances. But it doesn't apply in Job's circumstances. So even these friends that have a lot of earthly wisdom and applied in some ways might even be godly wisdom are proven to be foolish when it applies to Job. God's wisdom confounds the wisdom of the wise who are shown to be foolish. This is a theme we see even in the New Testament. I was meeting with a student earlier today. We're reading a book about uh, the cross and Christian leadership. And we were talking about uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25. Uh, and it talks all about the, uh, the wisdom of the cross being uh, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The wisdom of God confounds the wisdom of the world and often doesn't make sense until God chooses to reveal Himself and and to uh, awaken dead hearts and open blind eyes. And that's exactly what we see happening in the book of Job. So any questions about the book of Job? Again, we're going for the 30,000 foot view. Okay, I saw you squirming, Dan. I was wondering if you were going to ask one. Yeah, um, how do you know that Psalms and Isaiah did 
there's a quote from instead of That's a great question. So how do we know that Psalms and Isaiah didn't quote from Job instead of Job quoting them? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question other than I think people just look at it and say it seems that Job is engaging with them versus them taking something Job said and incorporating it in. I think that would be the case, but I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. Well, Job, Job is telling an older story. Yes. Yeah. But, we don't, but most folks don't think that Job was written first. They think that Job is, again, pointing back to something that's much earlier. But I also said we don't know for sure. And, it's, and, and this is the great thing about this. This is not going to be true of most other books, so let me go ahead and say. If you're looking for a book in the Old Testament where you can say, gosh, I just don't know who wrote it and when and not be a liberal, this is your book. Because normally when people say, I don't know who wrote it and when, they could, but they're choosing not to. But Job, we really are just all kind of saying, I'm not 100% sure what's going on and we're just going to take our best guess as possible. So this is what I found is the consensus, but it could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the Psalms. Now, before we talk about the Psalms, have we been together long enough that I can pick at you a little bit? Now, I'm not picking at anybody in particular, but I'm picking at a certain type of person, and this might apply to you. So remember afterwards, we're talking about Israel. Don't come up to me if this applies to you. The book is the book of Psalms, but when you're talking about an individual Psalm, it's not a plural. There's no such thing as Psalms 23. Or Psalms 96, just like there's not a book in the Bible called Revelations. And there's not a grocery store called Kroger's. Or a department store called J.C. Penney's. So, it's the book of Psalms, and that's a psalm. We all, we're all good, right? No one's going to come after me afterwards. All right. Jeremy Thompson told me I had to say that, so... He, did, he didn't do that. I made that up. So, Psalms is named for the Greek word psalmos, which simply means song. The Hebrew title of the book is the Tehillim, which means praises. Now, this book is sometimes referred to as the Psalter because it is a collection of psalms. Now, you're probably not going to see Tehillim, but in Orthodox synagogues, if they're studying in Jewish, that's what they're going to... Or in Hebrew, I'm sorry, not studying in Jewish. Good grief. If they're studying in Hebrew, that's what they're going to call it. You might see Psalms and Psalter used interchangeably. The book has many authors, the most famous of whom was David, who wrote about half the Psalms. He wrote at least 73 of the 150 Psalms. Maybe more, but at least 73 of them. The oldest Psalm, Psalm 90 dates to the time of Moses, around 1400 B.C. About half of them were written during the time of David, around 1000 B.C., and likely the compilation was completed during the time of Ezra, around 400 or 450. 
And uh, it's because some of those later authors are contemporaries of people like Ezra and Nehemiah. They're mentioned in their books. And so at least a couple of the Psalms date much later. So not all the Psalms, but at least some of the Psalms were collected over a thousand year period of time. Isn't that amazing? That's a long-term hymn book when they're putting things together. Psalms 1 and 2 are an introduction to the entire Psalter. And then the remainder of the work is divided into five books. Psalm 1 covers Psalm 3 through 41. Uh, Book 2, Psalms 42 through 72. Book 3, Psalms 73 through 89. Books 4, Psalms 90 through 106. And book 5, Psalms 107 through 150. Now there are four debates about the Psalms that are worth considering. There are other debates, but these are the four that I think that you would find interesting and that sometimes can help us think through the Psalms. So number one, and I've always been fascinated by this, scholars are not sure whether the biblical titles of the Psalms are original or were added later. And here's why. For the longest time, the oldest manuscripts we had of the Psalms did not have whatever the title says, like a Psalm of David or something like that. It looked like it was added later, perhaps by whoever edited the final version of the Psalms or someone shortly after that. But just in the last few decades, we've discovered some even older manuscripts where they do have the titles. So we're not 100% sure. It might be when it says a Psalm of so-and-so that that's original to the Psalm, or it might be that someone added that so that the Jews knew what they were singing about. But there's a debate even among conservative scholars as to whether those titles are part of the Scripture or whether those titles are just like the headings that you find if you're looking in the book of Romans and it says something like, not ashamed of the gospel, and then it gives you a a section. We, We don't know for sure what's going on there. Number two, scholars are not certain of the meaning of the various technical Hebrew terms that show up, like Selah being the most famous, or Hegeon, or Maskil. There's about eight more, seven more that show up as well once or twice. Nobody knows for sure. Now, there's a lot of really great pious guesses about what Selah means because it shows up more than others. But guess what? Nobody really knows. Nobody really knows for sure. Maybe it means a reflective pause. You see a lot of folks who say that. But we really don't know for sure what any of those terms mean. Number three, scholars debate whether certain psalms were put together because they were originally interpreted messianically. The most famous is Psalm 22 through 24, which includes the most famous of the psalms, Psalm 23, I want to encourage you to go back when you have just five to eight minutes. Read Psalm 22, which is clearly messianic. Psalm 24, which is clearly a royal psalm. And Psalm 23, which is talking about a shepherd. And you can see why there's some who wondered were some of the... Because somebody put them together in a particular order for a particular reason. We don't know who, but are some of them together because they're very intentionally pointing forward to the Messiah? Do you think that uh, you talked about they're not sure how they were put, might have been put together? Are you talking about 
So when I'm talking about how the Psalms were put together, I mean the, the order of Psalm 1 through 150. Somebody had to decide what was Psalm 1 and what was Psalm 150 and everything in between. And so the question is, were some of the Psalms grouped together specifically because they were pointing forward to the Messiah? And a lot of scholars think that they were. And I'm very sympathetic to that. We don't want to say it's a slam dunk, 100% obvious, because we're not sure, but... Um, but I find that pretty persuasive for some of them. And then finally, this one's just for fun. Christians have debated throughout history the place of the Psalms in New Covenant worship. There's two extremes. One extreme says we can only sing Psalms. And you find some churches that only sing Psalms, including in Greenville County. The other extreme says we don't sing no psalms. And everything is, uh, is out of a hymn book, but not a psalm, or it's off of the radio or whatever. Those are the two extremes. But remember, we're commanded by Paul to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we're commanded to sing David, Fanny, and Caleb. No, that's not necessarily what that means. But but again, but the, but the point is the New Testament actually does command us to sing psalms, just not to exclusively sing psalms. So it's part of our worship as well. We should be singing songs that are based upon the psalms or maybe even setting the psalms themselves to music, though I don't see any biblical argument that that should be the only thing we're singing like some of our friends would say. Now, there are dozens of themes within the various psalms, and that can depend on all kinds of factors. Who wrote the psalm? Or what was the occasion? Some of the psalms tell us why they were written. Or where it's included in the Psalter. So it's probably better to discuss some of the various types of psalms instead of the themes, because just about every theme in the Bible is found in the psalms. So here's just a partial list of the most common types of psalms. The first is Psalms of Lament. About a third of the Psalter are Psalms of Lament where they're crying out to God for deliverance or they're sad over their sin or their circumstances. Now I know it's dangerous to start talking about worship music, but we've already done it a little bit, so let me say this now. I've not been in very many Baptist worship services or Presbyterian or non-denominational or Methodist worship services where we lament when we sing. We do a lot of praising. We do a lot of instructing. Not a lot of lamenting. It's just something to think about whenever we see that a third of the inspired hymn book is about lament. Psalms of praise. Now we do that a lot. No big surprise, again, the Hebrew name for it means praises. Lots of psalms of praise. Psalms of thanksgiving. Thanking God for what He's done. There are wisdom psalms that are all about uh, being wise and praising God for His wisdom. Sometimes the categories overlap. That's why it's often put with wisdom literature. Imprecatory psalms. The psalms calling upon God to exercise vengeance as the just judge 
against evildoers. Royal Psalms, Psalms that are all about the kingship of God or the kingship of the coming Messiah or in a handful of places just the kingship of David, but royal Psalms. And then finally, historical psalms. And what we mean by that are psalms that are recounting things that have happened in redemptive history, like Psalm 90, Moses' praising God for the deliverance with the Red Sea and that sort of thing. So these are just some of the categories, and, and not all scholars agree on what the categories are. Might be as many as about 15, but the point is we see recurring patterns in the psalms with the way that they're structured and the type of things that they were calling upon Israel to sing about. I, uh, for what it's worth, I think there's great value in, uh, in every year or two just reading through the Psalms as part of your devotional life. Uh, for many, many summers now, uh, that's been my devotional reading is just going back through the Psalms. And uh, again, because it covers just about every topic in Scripture, and, and in a way where they're constructed as praises, which mean they also make great prayers. It's wonderful to pray the Psalms back to God. So I would commend that to you as a, as a devotional practice. Any questions about the Psalms? Yes, sir. So I've always been curious about those terms that we don't know what they mean. And does, is that because they like disappeared from Hebrew language and they don't show up anywhere else? And is that, are there other words throughout Scripture? I think there are other places where the, your notes will say we don't know what this mm-hmm. means. This is a great question. Uh, so what about those terms that we don't know what they mean, the technical question, I mean the technical terms? Uh, they did. They just disappeared out of the Hebrew language, and there are other words that disappeared out of the Hebrew language. Now here's the good news. There is no doctrine or big ethical question that, uh, that is hanging in the balance because we don't know what a word means. But there are several dozen words in Hebrew where we just aren't 100% sure what that word is because nobody had used it for hundreds of years by the time Christians were trying to interpret the Old Testament in the early church. Does that make sense? It, words disappear over time. And, and we, even, we even see that. I mean, some of you are old enough, that, especially slang and, and idioms. You know, some of you, you hear somebody say something and you think, man, I've... I've not heard that in decades. You know, well, that happens with every language, and it happened with the Hebrew language. Now, I'm not aware of any Greek terms where we don't know exactly what it means. I mean, there's some where we wrestle with, you know, is it that nuance or that nuance? But we know generally what every Greek word means, and we know exactly what 99% of the Greek words mean. But again, there's several dozen of these Hebrew words. We're just not 100% sure uh, what they're talking about. There's all kinds of great theories. You know, is, is that an instrument? Or, uh, or is it a musical cue? Or is it a direction to the audience about something that they do in the middle of the song? Or, or to prepare themselves for the song? It could be any of those things. It could be something completely different. We just don't know for sure. Any other questions? All right. Oh, I'm so excited. My favorite book in the Old Testament is the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs is named for the sort of sayings that are collected in the books. Solomon was the author of most of the Proverbs and their primary compiler 
though it does seem that the final form of the collection was completed during Hezekiah's reign. That's because it tells us in Proverbs 25.1 that some of Hezekiah's men gathered Solomon's Proverbs together. And so what that would mean is that the primary authorship was sometime in the mid-900s during Solomon's reign. We know those years. But the final form would have actually been a couple hundred years later during Hezekiah's reign. So Solomon's the primary author, but we do know that there are a handful of other Proverbs that he didn't write. Uh, We'll talk about some of those in just a second. And again, it looks like that the final form was put together a little bit later. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 is an introduction to the book. And then Proverbs 1, 8, verses 9, 18 is a father's call for his son to exercise godly wisdom. And then if you're ever reading through Proverbs, you know that you get to Proverbs 10 and it abruptly changes. And it becomes all those short, pithy Proverbs that are just a verse or two each. So Proverbs 10 through 22, 16 are all of, Pro- are all of Solomon's shorter Proverbs. He himself wrote or recorded those Proverbs. And he may not have come up with all of them on his own, but he wrote or recorded all those Proverbs. Then Proverbs 22.17 through 31.9 include Proverbs that were written by others but likely collected by Solomon uh, because it tells us other names. This is a proverb of so-and-so or these are the Proverbs of such-and-such. But again, we know Solomon didn't just write Proverbs. He also accumulated Proverbs. He was learning from the wisdom of others. And then Proverbs 31.10 through 31, we get another abrupt change and we get a poetic acrostic extolling the virtues of a godly woman. Now, who knows what an acrostic is? What's an acrostic? It's a a letter, letters that mean... Yeah, that's right. The, 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 The letters begin different thoughts, and in the case of this uh, poetic acrostic, it's actually the Hebrew alphabet. And so in the original Hebrew, the sentences, which are a little bit different than our verses, because you always flesh that out a little bit for different languages, but if we were all able to read Hebrew and we were looking at the Proverbs 31 woman, uh, it's their version of A, adore, B, beautiful, you know, that sort of thing where everything traces out. It doesn't, it doesn't translate to English well, but that's how it was originally written. So. Uh, We talk about how poetry finds its way into different sections of the Bible, even sections of the Bible that we don't think of as poetic, and Proverbs 31 is one of those. Now, the major theme of Proverbs is that a life of godly wisdom is rooted in covenant relationship with God. It must be pursued intentionally, and it normally results in flourishing. That's like the big picture of Proverbs. And then within that major theme, Proverbs addresses many, many recurring topics. And I've just listed some of them here for you. Proverbs about friendship. Proverbs about godly speech. Proverbs about diligence versus laziness. Arise, you sluggard. Proverbs about marriage. Proverbs about parenting. Proverbs about finances, ethical living, 
sexual purity, one's reputation, the dignity of work. So these are recurring themes that we find in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Over the years when I've had the opportunity to teach college groups in a local church setting, uh, the first thing that we do is often begin with the book of Proverbs and start looking at these themes because we have 17 to 23 year olds and they're prone to be dumb. And so even when they love Jesus, you know, their, their brains aren't fully formed yet. And so we're trying to help them to think about what does it mean to live wisely. And Proverbs is a really excellent uh, tool to do that. So any questions about the book of Proverbs? Yes, ma'am. Would you address, I think the term is dark sayings that Solomon collected, the dark, dark sayings. The dark sayings of Solomon? Maybe. I'm not familiar with that. I've not heard that terminology. Maybe I've just missed that, but I, I don't. I'm, I'm not thinking of that offhand. Okay, yeah, the dark sayings. I mean, some of them are kind of dark. But I don't think it really means dark. They're like riddles. Oh, okay. So maybe more like riddles. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is. Yeah. One of my all-time favorite sermon series at a different church was uh, the past senior pastor preached through the book of Proverbs. And, uh, and he, he just said, you know, if you try to preach through Proverbs, like you try to preach through Acts or you try to preach through Romans, it just doesn't work the same way because it's so disjointed. So he said that uh, he likened it to taking a magnet like you see at the dump where the magnet comes through and pulls all the metal up and then they put the metal in the trash compactor. He said it was like a magnet and he was setting the magnet on the parenting setting and pulling up all the proverbs about parenting and setting it on the sex setting and setting it on the finance settings and created uh, a topical but expositional series on those different themes. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. So again, love me some proverbs. I also like Ecclesiastes. This is another good go-to with college students or anybody. Ecclesiastes is named for the word that you may have heard before, ecclesia, assembly. We translate it as church. It's a reference to the first verse of the book which mentions an unnamed preacher. So presumably, since he's an unnamed preacher, he would have been addressing an assembly. So that's why it's called Ecclesiastes. The book is officially anonymous since only the author's title is used. However, historically, most Jews and Christians have argued that Solomon is the author since the preacher is also called David's son and is referred to as having great wisdom and great possessions. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Solomon. So we can't say with 100% certainty it was Solomon because, again, the author doesn't tell us, but probably with Solomon. And assuming that Solomon is the author, that means that the book would date to the 10th century because that's when he lived. The structure of Ecclesiastes is notoriously difficult to outline. People don't preach through Ecclesiastes for the same reason they don't preach through the Proverbs in exactly the same way. So it's best to see the book as an extended poetic reflection on the following key themes. And I've kind of put them in the order that they Uh, Not that they develop, because again, it's kind of disjointed, but this would be, when we're looking down 30,000 foot, kind of what's happening with uh, Ecclesiastes. The world has fallen, 
and thus nothing seems certain. Sin and death are the experience of all people. Life is filled with vanity, or that could be interpreted as vapor, meaning everything can seem fleeting or ephemeral or faddish or even incomprehensible. Work leads to both frustration and joy. And yet, in the midst of all the brokenness around us, God gives good gifts to all people, blessing even unbelievers in His common grace. All who are wise will understand all of that above and respond with fear of Yahweh, the one who remains certain and who desires all to flourish by worshiping and serving Him. You can see why this is a, a good book to go through with college students or with folks who are wrestling with whether Christianity is true, good, and beautiful. It is uh, in many ways an apologetic work that's describing for us uh, the Judeo worldview, integrate it with the gospel, the Judeo-Christian worldview, and how to think about this confusing, tumultuous world that's around us. And so it's really a remarkable book. But again, it's a tough one to just kind of go through from beginning to end because there's times where uh, you think he's going to zig and he zags. But, uh, but again, whenever we kind of read the whole thing and reflect on it, uh, it's really a, a, a remarkable book. Back up one second and tell me the definition again if you're an apologetic. An apologetic would be... Uh, an argument for the truthfulness of Christianity, or in this case, uh, Yahweh worship, uh, that is addressing the objections that unbelievers might have. So whatever that is, whether it's a moral objection or a philosophical objection or in our day, a scientific or historical type objection, it's kind of going right to that, the heart of that objection and answering it and building a bridge to sharing the gospel. We will actually have a, uh, it'll be next year I think, but we'll have a short series on apologetics and what that means as part of the Institute. <sighs> All right, folks. I didn't want to talk about it. My beloved wife's been making fun of me for a week, knowing that this day was coming, but here we go. With great fear and trembling, the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is named for Solomon, who either wrote the book or in whose honor the book was written. Jewish and Christian scholars are divided as to the authorship, in part because the details in the book are difficult to reconcile with what we know about Solomon. Also, by the way, the original title is Song of Songs, not Song of Solomon. So don't say, but it's called Song of Solomon, so that means it was definitely said, that, that was added later. It's called the Song of Songs originally. It was added by people who think it's Solomon. So we're not 100% sure whether he wrote it or it was written for him. However, most scholars still date it to Solomon's reign in the 10th century, and argue that even, again, if Solomon wasn't the author, it was possibly a poem written in his honor. Song of Solomon is arguably the most hotly debated book in all of the Bible. 
especially in the Old Testament. There is no consensus on how to best interpret the book. And when I say no consensus, I mean there ain't no consensus historically on how best to interpret the book. Most all interpreters agree that Song of Solomon honors married love, but it also includes relatively graphic explanations of sexual intimacy. The latter is the reason why some Jews and Christians argue it should not be part of the canon. There are three major ways to interpret the book. These are the major ways. There are lots of minor ways to interpret the book. But I'm going to give you three big options. Option number one, Song of Solomon is an allegorical poem symbolizing the love between God and His covenant people. This has been the most popular view throughout Christian history. After all, both the Old and New Testaments use marriage as an analogy for God's relationship with His people. This interpretation is the reason the book was included in the canon. However, the sexual language has always made some readers uncomfortable. They were not united about it, even when it kind of gets in. It's always been debatable. Also, allegorical interpretation has fallen out of favor since the time of the Reformation. It's not disappeared completely, but it's, it's not what we go to whenever we're reading Scripture. Since the 19th century, which I know was a long, long time ago, but it was the day before yesterday if we're talking about church history. Since the 19th century, this view has been unpopular with most Bible scholars. So here's how we're going to summarize it. It's what most Christians have believed throughout Christian history, but most scholars have rejected it for a couple hundred years. Conservative and liberal. Option number two. Song of Solomon is a poem about two commoners who love each other. The woman is wooed by King Solomon to join his harem, but she ultimately leaves him to be reunited with her true love whom she marries. This is the princess bride interpretation of Song of Solomon. <laughs> Many scholars have preferred this view since the 19th century. After all, History is filled with stories exactly like this one, including modern stories like The Princess Bride. That's a classic trope of the king who tries to woo the commoner, but she chooses her true love over the king. So history is filled with stories like this. However, this interpretation has several issues. The most important concern is that it's not always clear when the woman is speaking to her true love and when she's speaking to Solomon if they're not the same person. And everybody has to kind of decide, wait, is that, is that Wesley or is that Humperdinck that she's talking to? You know, it's not clear when you're just reading Song of Solomon. It also seems to many a less straightforward reading, just a little more complicated than either a straight allegorical approach or the next option. So this is very, very popular with scholars, some conservative scholars, most non-conservative scholars, but there's a third option. Song of Solomon is a poem honoring the dignity of marriage and sexual intimacy. 
This view has been popular since the mid-20th century, especially with pastors who are committed to expository preaching, verse by verse, going through the Bible. Interpreted this way, Song of Solomon becomes a biblical manual for marriage and sex. The problem with this interpretation, problems are twofold. First, the book would likely not have been accepted in the canon if this had been the dominant understanding in the early centuries. Again, it got in because of the allegorical interpretation. Second, this interpretation seems like a strange fit with the rest of the wisdom literature. Simply put, why do we need this book if this is its meaning since the same principles about marriage and even sex can be found in other places in the Old Testament but without the graphic language. So what do we do with the Song of Solomon? I don't know. I don't know. Because here's the problem. At the 30,000 foot level, and I know that's what we're talking about, but I'm using that language a little bit differently with Song of Solomon. Kind of big picture, the allegorical interpretation approach makes good sense. Some of that language is awfully graphic if we're talking about God's love for His people. That's allegory, but still pretty graphic. The second one, I put it in here because, again, you can pick up many commentaries and find it even by conservatives. I, don't, I just don't find it. I think it's the least plausible of the three. It's just too complicated. And the third one, man, it makes for good preaching. It's good preaching. What does the Bible teach about marriage and sex? It makes for good preaching. But, I mean, guys, it is the day before yesterday that people started believing that that's what Song of Solomon's about. So I don't, I don't know what to do with it. So I thought in this particular case, the best thing I could do is just give you the three options and kind of what they have going for them and what the possible negatives might be and say... We don't know for sure. But don't let your elementary school kids read it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Gr- gr- growing up, one of my all-time favorite memories, so bad, one of my all-time favorite memories in church was uh, Youth Sunday. You're right. Youth Sunday where, uh, I won't give her last name, but where Betsy decided as part of the Sunday night service she was going to read the entirety of Song of Solomon on Youth Sunday. And she read it and she wept while she read it. And all the older folks were weeping too, but not for the same reason that Betsy was weeping. (laughs) There were very clear instructions about what was and was not acceptable on Youth Sunday after that particular Youth Sunday with... uh, with Song of Solomon. So, what questions or comments? I'm sorry. Uh, I was just saying, you were, there were more options. So, are there are these? They're just they're variations of these three options. Okay. Just yeah, different nuances and stuff. And some of them are just weird. Okay. <laughs> some of these are weird, but some some of them are just weird. Yes, sir. So that is a great question. Could it be a one and three? And could it be similar to prophecy where you've got kind of the straightforward 
meaning, if you will, but maybe it's also pointing. So I actually, I've taught that before. I just wrestle with it. So there's been times in the past that I've even said it might be a combination of one and three, and there very much is the, uh, the dignity of marriage and, and sexual intimacy, and, and, and we certainly shouldn't shy away from talking about that in a Christian way. Uh, but at the same time, it's also on a different level, big picture, talking about Christ's love for His church. That's definitely possible. But, uh, but there's not been lots of folks who've argued that in print. But I've wrestled with that same thing. And if even when I've been pressed in seminary classes about this, Sid, I, 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 could, I could go that way. For sure. That's a great question. Other questions? Yes, sir. But then, should we use like Job and Ecclesiastes, yeah. you know, to balance out? That yeah. Word? I don't know. What are you yeah. No, that's a great. That's a great question. Does does the wisdom literature, because the different writers or different books have different perspectives, how do we? Uh, how do they complement each other? And uh, I very much track like you're. I think asking. I think of the wisdom literature as a diamond. Diamonds have facets, right? And when you shine that diamond in the light, different facets sort of shine, uh, depending upon how you hold it to the light. So I definitely see kind of the whole collection of the wisdom literature as like a diamond with different facets. And, you know, the, the way that we hold it up to the light uh, very much depends on what we want to think wisely about and the voices from Scripture that we want speaking into the particular situations that we're in. I think that happens big picture with the wisdom literature, and I think within the book of Proverbs that happens as well. Because remember, some of the Proverbs are situational, and in Proverbs 26.4 and 26.5, one of them says, Answer not a fool, and the other one says, Answer the fool. Well, that's not a contradiction. That's saying sometimes you say, Shut your mouth, and other times you say, I, I don't have time for this. But enough about social media. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go ahead and close us in prayer, but, uh, but then I'm going to stick around for a little while, and if you're interested, we can dialogue some about Israel. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom literature, Lord. We pray that you would help us to read it and wrestle with it, even when it's sometimes confusing, Lord. And we pray that we would live wisely and walk closely with you as your Holy Spirit speaks through your word into our lives for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.